Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Adam Jones, one of the authors of the Financial Times management blog, which can be found at www.ft.com forward slash management blog. This is part two of my interview with Tom Peters. Um, and I think you've been talking recently about the need to be close, uh, not necessarily to the customer, which is uh, perhaps a, a theme that you explored in the 80s, but to the internal customer. Uh, can you just uh, explain a little bit, little bit more about that? Well, you know, it's, it's not inconsistent with what we were talking about just a second ago. We, you know, we get, for heaven's sakes, at some level, and there must have been a million people who said it before me, but in search of excellence, which a lot of people did buy, we said, get close to your customer. Good idea. And absurd as simplistic statements were like that, it was not the normal practice. So, you know, good for us. Uh, but very short example. I was in Mexico a week or so ago, and I was talking to the leadership of a telecommunications company, a uh, very modern, high-technology telecommunications company, and one of their leading salespersons. And, uh, you know, she said, she's, she's, you know, we were doing the, you know, people were asking whatever the heck they want to ask. And she said, what do I do? Uh, I make these fabulous deals with my customers, and then the company doesn't deliver, or they don't do this, or they don't do that. And my, you know, I was silent for a while, which is hardly the norm. And I said, surprising myself, I said, you should spend less time with your customers, by which I meant you should spend more time with what may be your primary customers which is the people in logistics or the people in manufacturing or the people in purchasing in your own company because if they are your best friends, they're going to pay a heck of a lot more attention to your order. You know, even though we say you know, A comes before B comes before C, you know, life in 2008 ain't that much different from life in 1066. Uh, if you and I are really good pals and I've invested a lot of time and attention in you, I'm going to get a little more... You know, what we're looking for, it's, it's, I love the word monopoly. And what I want to do is I want to monopolize your energy for the cause of my external clients. And so, you know, it's, it's looking at the way the real world of the innards of organizations work. And, and uh, you know, as one of the uh, responsible parties for the, you know, for the, the other way of talking about things, I'm just, I'm just kind of fundamentally interested in these organizational mechanisms and, mm-hmm and what real people do when they go to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, you did obviously have a focus on uh, the big U.S. companies in your book, uh, In Search of Excellence, which was published in 1982. Um, and obviously, um, over the years, there's been a fascination with how that cohort of, was it 43 companies, yeah. um, have done? I mean, companies like, um, um, among them was uh, Johnson & Johnson. Um, you also had uh, less um, stellar performers uh, such as Atari. Uh, what does it look like right now, your cohort of 43? Well, I don't know what it looks like right now, but I know what it looked like in 2002. I'd never done any analysis. Bob hadn't done any analysis. And of course, you know, we were so successful that anybody who writes a book has to automatically have in the first 10 pages all Peters and Waterman's companies failed. 
uh, Fortune.com on the 20th anniversary did, they created what they called the Excellence Index. And as I, we did have 43, but somehow or other I think they came up with the, name, the number of 32 that were publicly traded companies that you could get data on. And to my, frankly, amazement and certainly delight, uh, our Excellence Index had pretty dramatically outperformed you know, the S&P 500, or the Fortune 500 and the S&P, the Standard & Poor's Index, and so on and so forth. And so it ceased to become as much of an issue. You know, in my presentations, I show a slide and I say, look, this isn't very relevant, but it'll make you feel better. So, you know, on the other hand, my, my real belief in the data, and I was kind of taught this by my old McKinsey colleague, Dick Foster, uh, who argued that over the long haul, the performance of large companies simply gets worse and worse and worse. They become big, they become bloated, and the real truth is that with all of the 2008 technology, if you're huge, you're slower than you were when you weren't huge. And so I expect these companies should deteriorate. And as you said, I mean, the, you know, the first, the, first, the, the first real attack came from uh, uh, when Steve Shepard took over from Lou Young as the editor-in-chief at Business Week. He needed to make his mark. And so his first cover story was, oops. And this was only three years after the book. And he said, ha, 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 ha. Look, Hewlett Packard's in the tank and digital. You know, Three or four of these companies had hit a rough patch, which everybody had. I don't deny for a minute that we made some of the most bonehead, you know, we lived in Silicon Valley. We thought Atari was cool. We thought Atari would last forever. I thought that because of their positioning with the desktop machines and so on, that without a shadow of a doubt, Wang would outperform DEC, HP, and so on. They were already producing de facto personal computers. Well, needless to say... Yeah, so we blew a few. We got a few right. Since we did well, we were treated as if we had written a Bible, and if you blow any of the Ten Commandments, you'll go directly right. to hell. What, what, we what, said some ordinary stuff. We said, pay attention to your right. customers. Do stuff. Quit talking so much. When actually it was a book where you got a, what was the uh, advance? Was it $5,000? So it wasn't uh, um, the Bible initially. Exactly. $5,000 advance, and there's great dispute. Uh, as to whether the first printing was 5000 or 10000 publisher made out like a bandit because books had sold for something like 11 bucks and they assumed that our book would sell nothing and so they jacked the price up to 15 bucks and then they sold a few so uh, one final question on In Search of Excellence. I mean, there was that uh, controversial interview in um, Fast Company about seven years ago where um, it was suggested that um, you'd said that uh, you'd faked the data for it. I mean, this was in the context of a book uh, that was um, an argument against being too analytical. But even so, is that something that um, has sort of uh, been a millstone for you subsequently? No, the, the, the uh, good news is, with all due, due respect to you and me, is that presumably the phrase is the same as, as in the UK, today's papers, tomorrow's fish wrapper. So, you know, it passed, as it, as it does in the world of, world of politics. Uh, one of my closest friends is Alan Weber, who I did the interview with at Fast Company, and I'm still willing to kill him if he got within, within hand reach, but we're still great friends. Uh, no, it wasn't the end of the wor world. I'm not going to try to sound like a politician and say that I misspoke, because I probably said it, but I said it in a laugh. 
Jim, the, the fundamental point was Col- Jim Collins and Built to Last was hot and so on. And Collins said, I went to a database of 1,000 companies, and, and magically out of those companies popped out 10. And I said, well, Waterman and I did it in reverse. We wanted to find some good companies. We went around to McKinsey guys. We went around to, mag- to, to, uh, you know, to academics. We went around to business executives, and we said, who's interesting? And we got a pile of interesting people, and then we subjected them to the financial analysis. And what I was really trying to say was, you know, we did not take a random sample of the universe and sort it out. But, you know, so what? I mean, no, we sure as hell didn't. I mean, look, I'll tell you, you want to know what I really told Weber in addition to that? You know it. I know it. God alone knows in the last few months. Wall Street knows it. When you're fiddling with data and you want something to happen, you can juggle the parameters until hell freezes over. Mr. Welsh is the most famous chief executive officer in recent times in America. As many have said, if you've got a half-trillion-dollar financial services company, at least in the short term, you can have any damn number you want. So anybody who pretends, and I'm not suggesting Jim and Jerry Porras did, both of them are very close friends, but anybody who pretends that they have an unbiased sample is an idiot. And anybody who looks at that, I mean, for God's sakes, every week tells us the degree to which the pharmaceutical companies chose to manipulate selectively the data on a clinical trial so they could get another $5 billion bucks before, in America's case, the FDA shuts them down. The truth and beauty, and you know, remember, the... We all know it. We've all known it. I think it was said by somebody a jillion years ago, lying with statistics is one of the easiest things as, as long as you were able to get past mathematics at the age of eight. This concludes part two of the interview with Tom Peters. In part three, he discusses the credit crunch and why he still thinks that it is better for businesses to be under-regulated than over-regulated. <laughs>